We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. I come from a sporting family. Both my parents were athletes, but sport was used to escape and distract yourself from the pressures of life. So the idea it could be a gateway to something profound never occurred to me. If I'm honest, I have long held a prejudice that sport is a bit mindless. So you can imagine my surprise when I came across a book called The Mindful Athlete, where the author suggests, know yourself and forget yourself. The more I read, the more I started nodding along. I'm coming from a different world from the opposite direction and ending up in a very similar place, and that's always very exciting. So my witness today was an aspiring basketball player until he was forced out of the game he loved by an injury. The medications to relieve his pain also numbed him to the emptiness he felt inside and led to a heroin habit. Many years on a meditation cushion to get clean introduced him to the founder of mindfulness, Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, and onto working with the legendary basketball coach, Phil Jackson of the Chicago Bulls. If you have watched the Netflix series Last Dance, you'll know all about this story. If you haven't, I can't recommend it highly enough. Even if, like me, you know nothing about basketball, because it's ultimately about so much more, how to find your peak performance and stay there. George Munford has worked with Michael Jordan, many Olympians and top corporate executives. He's distilled his life story and his knowledge into a book called The Mindful Athlete, Secrets to Pure Performance. George, welcome to The Meaningful Life. Thank you, Andrew. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Now, I normally ask my witnesses what prepared them to write the book or to become an expert on their topic, but I want to turn it around and ask the opposite. In what way did your childhood stop you from being mindful? I would say because it was painful, and the last thing I wanted to do was to be present for pain. Now, even though I said it was painful, it's the painful experiences that caused me to do that. But ultimately, though, my life, there were a lot of amazing, wonderful things that happened in it. And they were overtaken by the traumatic things or the things that were uncomfortable. So you were the 10th child of 13, and your father was an alcoholic. And that sounds pretty tough to me. Yes, it was extremely tough. I grew up mostly with my sisters. There was five boys in my family. I had four brothers. Two were older, like 11 years and 15 years older. They weren't going to be hanging out with me. And then my mm-hmm. younger brothers, especially if they're three and six years younger than you at a certain age, it's just not appropriate for them to be hanging with me. So having multiple mothers was pretty interesting. Uh, having my sisters and, and they used to take care of me or they, they had the privilege or the hindrance of having to take care of me or drag me along with them sometimes. So it was painful, but a lot of it was not just external pain. A lot of it was because I was so sensitive. I guess I could describe myself as an empath. In other words, being able to pick up other people's feelings. And at a young age, what what is one to do with that? It's very painful to be aware of everybody's pain or 
people's emotions and most people are in pain or when they're in pain, like I said, even though even if 80% of my life was amazing and the other 20% was unpleasant, the unpleasant would overwhelm the other. And so, yeah, so it was definitely painful. So I, I withdrew. Could you tell me a story that would illustrate that? I remember walking, I must have been with my mother or somebody older, and walking down the street, and I saw a wino. You know, what we call a wino, it could be translated to a homeless person or somebody who was, you know, intoxicated. And I would feel really sad upon seeing the person. And I knew that if I were to say something about it, I would get the refrain stop being so sensitive or, you know, you can't do anything about that. That's just a why no, you know, just let's go, whatever. So for me, I think it had a lot to do with just realizing that I didn't know what to do with it. So I would kind of stay inside and not want to say anything to anybody because it's not like they joined me or encouraged me to feel my feelings and to share them. It was the opposite. So you learned from a young age to keep your mouth shut. Yeah. And of course, I was kind of the message at home, whether it was meant to be a message, high interpreted, I interpreted the message to be to be seen and not heard, especially if I'm going to talk to them about how I was feeling or how I was seeing things. And what about your relationship with your father? What was that like? My relationship with my father is similar to relationships I had with coaches and other people of authority in those days. If they talk to you, it's because you did something wrong. If uh, you were doing your job, it's like, so what do you want from me? You know, you're doing your job so you don't get beat today or you don't get disciplined. So it was that kind of a relationship of talking. And I couldn't really, depending on what mood he was in, but for the most part, it felt like to me, the only time he got involved was when it was discipline or he had to tell me something. Otherwise, because he was working two jobs a day. So he, you know, come home tired. I don't think he had much energy to do anything else. And plus, under the influence of, of alcohol, that made it even worse. So you really didn't want to engage with him too much. There were times when I could talk to him and whatever. But in terms of sharing my how I really felt, sharing my authentic feelings, that wasn't welcome. And what do you think is the impact of shutting all of this stuff away? Living in my own little world, interacting, but having just not really being self-expressive, not feeling empowered, not feeling connected as much as I could have, and, and not being able to express myself, especially being able to just have my own voice and to be willing to step up and speak up. And how did sport fit into all of this? What I loved about sport is that it allowed me to express myself without having to talk. <laughs> See, because talking was dangerous. I, As I look on it now, you know, you speak up, you get beat up or you get beat down, however you want to look at it, whether it's physically or emotionally or mentally. So it was a lot easier just to let my game speak for itself. And of course, to communicate when I had to. But even then, I was more subservient. You know, I just wanted to fit in. I didn't want to really bleed or be out there because to me, to be out front or to really express myself other than expressing it physically, I'm, I would say I'm more kinesthetic, I'm more physical. So it's, it's easy for me to just express myself and let my game talk for me. And 
sort of sport kept you balanced? Am I getting that correct? Yeah, it gave me something to look forward to and a place to express myself to the degree that I could. And I imagine that even in that domain, it was hindered a little bit, but there was a freedom there. We played all the sports, you know, like stickball, tag, dodgeball, all of that stuff. And I remember I was late to play basketball. Most of my friends had been playing a couple of years before I started playing. But the interesting thing was, I don't ever remember struggling playing basketball in terms of being able to dribble, being able to do things. I just picked it up. It was good. How did you manage to get yourself injured? That was the interesting thing. I believe one of the consequences of being under stress or feeling like I wasn't really that safe is that I had a lot of GI problems or stomach problems growing up because of the stress. I was seemed to be always some stress there. And I was injury prone. So what I mean by that is I was injured a lot. I think every year in high school, I was on crutches in one form or Gosh. another. Yeah. So, and I know this now because of the how it impacts the stress impacts your immune system as well as your overall health. I just believed that I was just injury prone. I was always hurt. Something was always going on. But it was actually, in a sense, some message from somewhere inside you that yes. something actually wasn't really working. That is absolutely correct. But nobody was listening, including me. <laughs> because I would play, I, I played all those years playing basketball, especially when I got to junior high school and high school, where I was in pain all the time. My knees hurt all the time. And I remember sharing it and people would say, you know, stop complaining, stop being the worst at this place. So I played through pain. And I'm pretty sure that probably helped with the injuries. And I did things like, one of the things I did is we used to wear these ankle weights to help you you know, be able to jump and everything. And I think they were 10 pounds. I don't, I think it, I don't know if it was five and five or 10 and 10, but it was 10 pound ankle weights. And I used to run around with them and jump and do all sorts of things. And I think that helped me get injured. And I remember one time in high school, I went up the block a shot or something and I came down and I sprained both my ankles. And then it seemed like for the rest of my basketball career, I always had ankles that were always susceptible to being sprained. And actually, I injured my ankle trying out for the varsity men's basketball team at UMass Amherst. And uh, I was playing pickup with the varsity because I had intended on going out for the team. And I got my legs cut from underneath me and I ended up having chip bones in my ankle. And that pretty much ended my career. So the thought that you were in pain most of the time was in fact coming from two places. One, that sort of holding all of these things inside. Right. So emotional pain and physical pain, you were in both of them most of the time. Yeah. Am I yes. hearing that correctly? Yes. yes. And so you can see why <laughs> I want to come inside and not really manage it, not really deal with it on life's terms, but pretty much relating to it in a way that helped me feel safe and protected, even though I really didn't, but the, the illusion that it was possible to do that. So what year are we talking about at this point? When I was in college, that was 1970. But in terms of when I started getting injured and stuff, it's probably in the ninth grade or, yeah, ninth grade either. So that's 1966 or somewhere around there. I don't remember, but I also know that because of my stomach issues and other things, I was given certain pain meds or things to help me with it. 
Because in the 60s and the 70s, if you were in pain, there was a pill for that, wasn't there? Yes, there was a pill, yeah. They didn't have sports medicine in the sense of understanding what interventions you were engaged in. And let's be real, they didn't have a lot of preventive medicine in those days. And these painkillers were incredibly strong, weren't they? What sort of kind of effect did Uh, they have on you? Yeah, so I was taking Davon at the time, that's what the drug was, and I I noticed that that started impacting me because I realized when I was under the influence of those pain meds that I I didn't have the inhibitions. I could speak and be more outgoing. So... You know, I thought, oh, this is interesting. So that got me involved in that kind of stuff, really wanting to feel that more. And of course, when I got injured, they tended to prescribe stuff like that. And how did that cross over into heroin? Because that seems to me quite a big leap from medication given to you by the doctor. Well, when you have that, I would call it dope mentality or just ignorance. I'll call it ignorance for a better word. You know, I, I started dabbling when I was in, I guess, 14, 15 or whatever, taking drugs, drinking a little bit, but I wouldn't smoke because I didn't want to stop my growth. So I didn't smoke marijuana until I was in college. But yeah, it just gradually and, you know, just where I grew up in the hood on a dead end street, you know, you pick up stuff, but I was very disciplined. I would use that stuff during the off season so I could control it for a long time. That's why I guess I was a functional substance abuser. So I continued to dabble, but once I got injured and I I didn't have any way to express myself or know who I was in terms of playing basketball, I guess my drug use really took off. And when did you decide that instead of actually ignoring your pain, you were actually going to explore it? So I was really, I was strung out on heroin. And so even though I worked and whatnot, I would get dope sick and I would do certain things. And it was one time, I think it was early 1984, when I had a strep infection and I went to the clinic because I was working. So I had, I was in an HMO. Then I went to the doctor and I had something like 104 degree temp fever. But to me, it was just what I'd normally encountered. So I had to stay in the hospital for about a week. And I think I started softening me up and realizing that I couldn't sustain that. You get to the point where you can't stop and you can't keep doing it. We call that bottom, you know, I hit a spiritual bottom where I just couldn't do it anymore. That was in March. So that would be, yeah, I guess that was like 30, 38 years or so ago in March. And then what happened was when I got out of the hospital and I was home, I was continuing to do what I was doing. A friend of mine came by on April Fool's Day. I knew he was like me. I always thought that I was never going to be a substance abuser, not do drugs and alcohol. And he came by and he was sober and he took me to an AA meeting. And at some point I had a therapist, so we talked about getting me into a detox and I got into the detox and that was it. And then once I saw that there was a way forward, my friend, I'll call him D, he showed me that it was possible for me to, to be clean and sober. The sort of cornerstone of your sobriety has uh, been mindfulness. Let's actually define what mindfulness is. What's the difference between mindfulness and meditation? Are they the same thing? Mindfulness, the way I like to talk about it, it's something that you can talk about, but you really won't understand it until you have an experience of it. It's one of those uh, nonlinear things. But let's just say for simplicity that you have a mirror and 
there's a little dust on the mirror or there's things that are getting in the way so you can't really see the reflection, what it's reflecting. So mindfulness is a process that allows you to get rid of the embellishments, all of the, so that means, so you have a clean mirror, but you also have to have a clean filter in terms of allowing what's there to speak to you instead of embellishing it based on our past experience with associative thinking, abstract thinking, self-interest, you know, especially self-interest. So we just want to see things clearly. So mindfulness is a process that allows you to do that. So when we talk about meditation, we have a very limited definition of what meditation is. But if you look up the word meditation, it says to contemplate. To contemplate means to look at repeatedly or to look at closely. So I would I would venture to say we're meditating all the time. But then there's what we call mindfulness meditation, where it's a process that allows you to strengthen your ability to be mindful. So we talk about being mindful and there's four components. We don't have to get into all of them, but the first one is mindfulness of the body. So you can see that the real idea of the body, even if you just look at the body, if you want to get really technical about it, is by observing the body, you notice that it's always changing. You're changing positions. It's changing. As you get older, you know, your hair changes, everything. So you're being mindful of impermanence. Things are always changing. Things are suffering. We have a body that suffers. You know, it's thirsty and it hungers. It has to go to the bathroom. So suffering is the first thing that you understand that suffering is here. We get attached to things. We lose it. It's, we suffer. We want something and we, we're not able to get it. We suffer. There's all sorts of suffering, but it's like suffering, impermanence. And this idea of self, there's no self here. There's no George. If you look, really, where's George? There's no George. It's just a component parts and a name that we label called George. But there's no George there, just like there's no Andrew there. So you understand that there's no self. Things are happening because the conditions are there that allow it to arise. And so if you just focus on just sitting and breathing, you notice you breathe in and you breathe out. Then you breathe in again. You don't stay with an in-breath. You don't stay with an out-breath. There's movement. The things are always changing. We know that. So you're being mindful of that. And why is that helpful? Because when you get old and you get sick and you die, you don't act like it's not supposed to happen. And so the whole idea of mindfulness is to be able to be fully engaged in the present and experience life fully and creatively and let it go. And the meditation is almost like a, a muscle that helps you do that. So you yes. do the meditation to be able to have a mental strength to do the mindfulness. Am I getting that right? Yes. And so speaking of mental and strengths and powers, this is why I talk about mindfulness by itself is not enough. Mindfulness shows you what's there. You need insight. I talk about the superpowers. You need insight or intellect or wisdom, however you want to call it. But you can look at wisdom as information, intellect, you know, rational thinking, and insight or direct experience. So we're going to go through all the five superpowers in a moment, but I would just be fascinated to know what it was like when you first sat down on a meditation cushion, because a lot of people I know say, oh, I can't meditate. I'm not very good at it. And then they sort of shut this whole world off. And my suspicion is that you were probably somebody that when you first sat down on a meditation cushion, found it really difficult. So I'd be really interested to hear what it was like yes. for you and how you got over that sense of, oh, I'm rotten at meditation. I got introduced to mindfulness meditation in a program called Stress Management. 
And it was taught by this woman who was a psychoneuroimmunologist, Dr. Joan Borisenko. And at that time, there were only three psychoneuroimmunologists in the world. So what does that mean? Psycho is the mind. Neuro, the nervous system, and immunologist is understanding the study of the mind-body connection. And so I was taught how to take responsibility for myself. And so I was taught mindfulness. And then we used to do, you know, we just be in the body and breathe in, breathe out. We, you know, and you learn how to just really get in touch with your body. So when we did it, everybody was sharing their experience. I didn't know what happened. I was like, well, I didn't have any experience, you know. It was really challenging for me. Something happened because I left my watch there. I forgot my watch <laughs> and stuff like that. So I really struggled with the sitting part. And then as far as sitting cross-legged, stuff like that, I just couldn't do it. But me being a recovering perfectionist, I didn't quit and I kept at it. And then I realized that I didn't even know how to observe things because I was kind of living in fantasy a little bit. But what happened was I realized that observing my mind, however it was, and oh, I can't do this. My mind's all over the place. That's it. So some people quit when they realize, no, you're just becoming aware for the first time how your mind is not your mind. It has a mind of its own and that we don't have the mental discipline to stay focused or sustain focus or to know what do I focus on? What do I think about? What we call self-regulation, self-regulated thoughts, feelings, behaviors. Instead of being driven by the externals and not having a discipline that allows us to focus and to really understand what are we thinking about and how does that affect us. So this brings me to, and I'm assuming you got people that like hip hop and whatnot. A lot of people have listened to Dr. Dre and I guess it was Dr. Dre and um, Snoop Dogg that you know, collaborated on a, a few of their hip hop raps, but it's attributed to Dr. Dre. He wrote it. And the lines are, I got my mind on money, money on my mind. That's meditation. So from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep, whatever your mind is on is what's on your mind. I have my mind on money, money on my mind. The whole idea is there's no neutral thoughts. Whatever's on your mind, you're manifesting. And so if you don't know what's on your mind and how are you going to know what's on your mind unless you be still and know or listen or get to a place where you can observe your thoughts, especially your self-talk and the inner dialogue that's going on. And so if you look at it that way, then it's common sense. But I heard a guy say one time, common sense is not common practice. So this is about mindfulness and this whole process of being present and the only time we have and being the only person we can be. That's what this is about. One of the things that I learned that I found incredibly useful was that I was thinking meditation was about emptying your mind. Yes. Whereas, in fact, actually, it should be about watching your mind. Have I got that right? You got that exact amundo, 100%. That's what it is. Because your mind can never be empty, but you can be in the silence that observes where your mind is not on money or, or anything. Your mind is just on the awareness of your experience and allowing things just like anything else to come and go and not being attached to it, not trying to push it away, not trying to pull it towards you, but they're fully engaged in it speaking to you in its own language. Now, this is a, a phrase from your book that I really like, is that we can alter our consciousness by going within. Yes. You can alter your consciousness by going within. 
So what do I mean by that? I mean that your consciousness is something that you can regulate or you can control. And it goes back to what William James said when he said volitional effort is the effort of attention. So I have a thought in mind, but I can choose to let it be there longer than it would be, or I can choose to direct my attention to something else. So instead of being in fear, and I have these fearful thoughts, or I have this feeling of being afraid, I can let that occupy my consciousness, or I can just notice it, be mindful of it, and mindfully direct my attention to the opposite, which is love. So instead of closing down, being open. And so once I know, oh, I have on the fear glasses, once I know that, I can take off the fear glasses and then put on the love glasses. That's the inside job. It's not something anybody can do other than yourself. So it's inside. So you have to do it, but you have to be aware what glasses you have on. So I have on glasses and sometimes I forget they're on because they're just on. But once I recognize, oh, I have on these glasses, but I could put on tinted glasses or another set of glasses. And so it's your viewpoint. It's your mindset. And that's one of the foundations of mindfulness is understanding when fear is in the mind, you're aware of it. And love is in the mind, you're noticing it and you're noticing how it affects you, how it obscures your ability to be present if you have fear and it shuts you down and puts you in a fight, flight or freeze. And this is an autonomic nervous system where your whole mind-body process is getting ready to fight, flee or freeze. But one of the problems is, is that because people are not actually really conscious of their feelings, it can be like the noise coming from the fridge. It's there all the time and you don't hear it. So yes. going back to your childhood, you were in fear for a huge chunk of the time, weren't you? And yeah. yet you were not actually conscious of that fear because it was so familiar. It was like asking a goldfish, does it know it's in water? Right. I was in survival mode. And you weren't even conscious of that. No, you're not conscious of it. But that's the reptilian brain. That brain's been around for millions of years. So what does it do? It forages for food and the reproduction. You know, that's all it's about. It's not about anything more than that. So we have that reptilian brain and we need it because if I'm walking across the street and the car's coming, I can't stand there and contemplate, should I move or not? My reptilian brain, you know, that fight, flight, freeze is going to get me out of the way. And protect me. So it's not like we don't need it, but we got to understand when we use it. So you're right. So I spent a great deal of that time imagining. That's why my GI problems. Why? Because when we are in that state, all of the blood and all the energy goes to the big muscles to fight, flight, or freeze. So if I just ate, now the food is goes undigested because the energy is going towards survival not throwing rest and digest or to getting to the point where I'm in growth mode. So you can see it affects my whole way of being. So even if I'm out of that environment, if I go somewhere else, I'm still bringing that with me. Exactly. Exactly. And unless you are mindful, you don't actually recognize all of this stuff. So actually, the first things when you're starting to meditate, you're going to get are all these messages from your body that you've been trying to ignore. And you're immediately mm -hmm. going to think, oh, yes. blooming heck, this is not for me and I'm going to run away from it. And effectively, the one thing that you had going for you, being an athlete, is that you would be prepared to stick with it. So, that, yes. you know, you were going to stick on that cushion yes. through the turbulence. Yes. Because 
we're going to start going through these five superpowers that you teach people. The first one, of course, is mindfulness. And what we're saying is it's going to be tough, but stick with it because you will get up above the clouds, above the turbulence right. eventually, and you will get a better sense of yourself. And this brings us to our second superpower, which is concentration. Tell me about concentration. Concentration is the ability to apply attention and sustain it. It's that simple. And what were we talking about? You're concentrated on on one object is being able to just focus on that one object without allowing other objects or allowing ourselves to be distracted. So if I think about like we're talking and we're in a conversation and let's say there's a siren outside my window or or something else is happening, phone rings or whatever, by being focused, being able to concentrate is just to stay on the task and be here now and be engaged in the present activity, just the one thing. And that sounds simple, but it's challenging because there's distractions and we get pulled in and it takes a certain amount of effort. It takes mindfulness to know that the mind has wandered off or got engaged in other things. And just by, I need to come back. And how do I come back? Just by thinking about what I'm doing, my attention comes back. So I have this ability to hold something in mind longer than it would ordinarily stay. It would only live ordinarily stay for a short period of time, then flint off to something else. But this is the practice of saying no to everything else and yes to the one thing. Because we live in a world that thinks we can multitask and do three things at the same time. And you can't. Right. So you've just got to concentrate on the one thing. So at this moment, you're listening to a podcast. I'm talking to George. And what I'm having for tea is of no consequence whatsoever. We've got to come back onto here we are. We're right. in this special space together. And we're focusing on the topic of five superpowers. Now, the next one we've had mindfulness and concentration is insight. And I'm going to give you a quote from your book that I love, which I think is a beautiful piece of insight. And then we can see how insight fits into the five superpowers. You can't solve problems with the same consciousness that created them. It's only in changing your consciousness that you can solve problems and transform your game. So tell me about that, because that feels like a really useful piece of yes, insight. That's a quote from Albert Einstein, where he said, the significant problems we face today cannot be solved at the same level that we were at when we first created them. And so this idea of insight, you can look at it as information. What am I being mindful of? What are the principles involved in, let's just say, listening? or whatever we're doing. So the insight is information, is intellect, and you start reflecting and using your rational mind and then having the insight. So you have information, intellect, insight, or the direct experience. That's what we really want. We want a direct experience of what it's like when our mind wanders off and we can bring it back and stay on task. We want that direct experience of that. So it might not be something really terribly deep, it might just be the insight is my job at the moment is listening to this podcast and really focusing on what George is saying. Yeah, thank you for doing that because there's a spectrum and all of these powers, there's a spectrum. There's clearly knowing a little bit, the clearly knowing on a deep, profound level. All of that is there. And so it's like just knowing a little bit, having a clear understanding of just a little knowledge or a deep, profound. So it can go from the profane to the profound. You can go from you know, like just little things to really deep things. So thank you for pointing that out. 
Right. Now, the next one is right effort. Now, what on earth is right effort? Okay. Do you remember Sisyphus pushing a rock up the hill? Yep. And then it would roll down and again roll and you have to start all over I, again. Yeah, I would say that's probably not right effort, but right effort is really energy. It's uh, energy to, to make the effort. Like when I think about right effort on a deep level, it's finding some enthusiasm to overcome lethargy or to have enough confidence and steadiness of mind to just make the effort, even though you don't think it's going to work or whatever. It's just that blue collar, just doing it. It's the initial effort of having some enthusiasm so that you have some energy to do it. But then it's the persistence. It's being able, like you talked about the athlete, the discipline, to stay on task, just do it. doesn't matter how you feel, but you need concentration to keep you in the moment and to keep you focused. And so I would say effort and concentration are balance each other. I was reading something, and I think it was somebody was going to Olympus, and they asked Socrates, how do you go there? And he says, just take one step in the direction of Olympus. It's like So it's like the tortoise and the hare. Slow motion gets you there quicker. The hare goes faster than it goes to sleep. It stops. With a tortoise going much slower, but it never stops. It keeps moving forward, keep moving in the right direction. Even when it goes off the trail, the mindfulness says you're off, and then you get back on, and then you just do the next thing. Emerson said, do the thing and you will have the power. And then I believe in the Bible, they talk about do what you know to do, and the next step will be given to you. So it's like Indiana Jones, when he's doing things, and they say, Indy, what are you going to do next? He says, I don't know. I'm making it up as I go along. So that's how <laughs> you do it, especially when you're in territory you've never been before. You don't have a roadmap, so you have to just kind of figure it out in increments. So actually, the right effort actually has got to be an effort that is sustainable, really. There's no point rushing up the hill with that rock because you're going to be coming back down again. So you've got to pace yourself almost. Not only pace yourself, but it has to be guided by insight. What's the best way to do it? So the effort without being guided by intellect or understanding or what's my intention? What is it I'm doing? How do I know when what I'm getting is what I need to get. That's why I said you need insight. You need mindfulness. Mindfulness is what helps us not only cultivate right effort, but to keep it balanced. So when we're trying too hard, which is most of us are guilty of that, we just have to ease up and bring more concentration, more poise into it, and just continuing to make baby steps and not worrying about the results, but focusing on the process. Yeah. And that's something I'm thinking of uh, people dealing with infidelity at this precise second. That if your partner has been unfaithful and you're overwhelmed with pain, you want to get through this as quickly as possible. So you're putting in a lot of effort, but it's probably not the right effort mm-hmm. because actually there's going to be baby steps that are going to help you recover. Right. So you really need to have the right effort for the next step rather than trying to get right to the exit so to speak. Yeah. So you understand what's involved. So once again, we'll talk about mindfulness, being mindful of what's happening and what's most important. The most important thing is to be able to embrace whatever is there, say yes to it. And how do I generate the hope? How do I relate to it in a way where I'm moving towards healing rather than being a victim of it and just being consumed by it? It's understanding, but you got to really ask questions like, you know, do you want this relationship? And if you want it, what are you willing to sacrifice? And where's, what's the role of forgiveness 
but you got to accept it first before you can forgive. You have to be with the feeling. So it's really interesting that a lot of the process is really about just feeling whatever you're feeling without the story about it so that you can get clear in the process that. That's really good. Let's say that again. You have to feel the feeling rather than being in the story about it. Rather than being in the story about it. So mindfulness of the body or being mindful of, okay, so I just got betrayed. And so you can get in the story, but in your body, there's going to be a physical manifestation of that. And we call it bare awareness or bare attention. So you can feel it. So it could be in your chest. It could be a tightness. It could be kind of like maybe it's anger, maybe your jaws get tight, whatever. And you just focus on that and just allow yourself to have the sensation without the story. And if you have mindfulness and you create space for it, you'll notice at some point it's going to change. Like everything changes, it's going to go from being intense to being less intense, but then you're just dealing with it and just seeing it. It's just tightness is whatever it is. You just notice the bare sensation so that you're you start to create space from it and you just experience it without getting into the proliferation of thoughts and the thoughts generate more feelings. And then you can get to the point where you just want to strangle the person or you just say, I don't want anything to do with you, whatever, instead of just feeling the feeling. And then you can decide afterwards, but you want to decide with a clear mind, with an open heart. But it may be that you can't get beyond the feelings for a long time. It's like the grief process. It has its own time. But the main thing is to feel the feelings and to embrace them, but not identify with them. So we're doing the five superpowers. We've done mindfulness, concentration, insight, right effort. They all fit together. And I think they probably produce the fifth one, which is trust. Tell me about trust. Trust is extremely important. I would say trust is probably one of the most important things for a lot of reasons, because everything begins with trust, especially relationships. Without trust and commitment, there's no relationship. It's just an interaction. And trust is huge. And it's the thing that we need to cultivate and it gets balanced. Let's just go back to insight. If you have too much insight, you become cynical and you have low trust. But if you have too much trust and no insight, then you have uh, polyamorous. So we want to have verified trust. And so trust and insight uh, balance each other. Mindfulness helps balance them and encourages them. But without trust, you don't get started because if you don't see, if I didn't see someone that I knew that had a drug problem, if I didn't see him sober, I wouldn't have had the hope and the faith and the trust to say, okay, I think I can try that. I'm willing to do that. And I call it the Hall of Fame. Of course, you know, to get in the Hall of Fame, whatever the sport or, you know, if you're a musician, you know, if the Rock Hall of Fame, whatever, the HOF, the Hall of Fame, how you get there? You get there by hope, optimism, and faith. So faith and trust is similar. So without faith, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. So it's having a faith that even though everything's telling me that I'm always going to be a dope fiend or alcoholic, I have the faith and the trust that says, no, even though that's what's here now, if I get on this path, I'm going to get to where I need to go. And let's move this into being a successful athlete or being great at business or something else. How does that all translate into this field? To be, <laughs> you have to, to be a mindful athlete or a mindful entrepreneur, you have to be a mindful person. And so 
wherever you go, there you are. So it's how you occur to yourself, how you see yourself. It's going to determine whether how you perform in your job or in the vocation or whatever you're doing. So how does that work? Well, the only time we have is now. And if you can create space between stimulus and response, when there's no space, that's when we're on automatic pilot. We're just allowing our conditions and our habits to take over. And if those habits are good, then we're probably great. But most of them are just maybe anachronisms. We have to be able to be in the moment to see things clearly and create space between stimulus and response. And in that space, we get the freedom and power to choose. And what do we choose? We choose our goals. We choose our values. We choose our destiny. So we've got to find the difference between the stimulus and the response. And it could only be half a second to separate those out. So we're actually conscious of them, then we can actually choose. So instead of actually going off on one, we can actually say, actually, no, I'm going to ask a question like, why did you do that rather than screaming at our partner, for example? So the stimulus, they've done something we don't like. We're conscious of the automatic thing, which is to sound off. And actually, if we can split those two things, we can make a choice. And the choice might be something different because we know that shouting at our partner, (laughs) I don't know about you, but it never works for me. Yeah, but we do Um, it anyway. We do it anyway because it's a habit. (laughs) It's It's a habit. And when we get emotionally hijacked, when there's no space between stimulus and response and the stimulus goes right to the amygdala and the middle brain instead of going to the prefrontal cortex where we have the executive functioning and we can think about it, there's a problem. And so that's why we have to, it's not so simple, it's complicated and it's simple at the same time. So if we had an incident where we yelled at our partner yesterday, then part of what we have to do is is reflect on, okay, what happened? How did that happen? How can I change that? What do I need to learn and practice so that I'm not so reactive? So you learn from your mistakes and you reflect on it and you understand that, yeah, you can retrain yourself. And some of the things we have to anticipate, but the things we don't anticipate, that's when we need to be able to be a silent witness and just observe it and just to wait and kind of find our way through. Like I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just making it up as we go along. So you make mistakes, but you learn from your mistakes. You're not your mistakes. And then when you go back at it the next time, you may have to do that thousands of times before you get, oh, I don't have to yell. I can just say, okay, she's upset or he's upset. And that's not my business. <laughs> I'm just going to be and just say, okay, so what's going on? Because what they're doing may be out of their own hurt and pain. And so if we can see, and if we can forgive ourselves, as Dr. Maya Angelou would suggest, she said, when you know better, you do better. So continual forgiveness is going to be part of the process, forgiving ourselves, forgiving others, learning from our mistakes. And learning to laugh at them or say, oh, that's interesting. Uh, What was I thinking? And then say, okay, so what's the intention? But having the clarity about what's my intention is really important. And if it's a right intention, and if it's an intention that's coming from love, let's just keep it really simple, then it's going to be the opposite of suffering. It's going to bring more harmony, more peace. And so that's why we have to understand you know, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what we, how we're behaving. And if we can self-regulate those things, we're probably going to be okay. So even though somebody blindsides us or attacks us for something we didn't do, can we just not react to it and just be with that, whatever it is, and just breathe with it and say, okay, 
I'm not going to open my mouth, not going to say anything. I'm just going to pause a little bit, breathe a little bit, and then decide how I want to respond. And if at that point you shout, well, that's your choice. But it's actually a choice rather than just an automatic response. Yes. Even when we're not choosing, we're choosing. So it's really taking responsibility and saying, even though somebody yells at me and I have the right to yell back at them, how's that working? (laughs) You know, so you're yelling at each other instead of really being able to pause and and just have some space and say, okay, so what's going on? Or what's the issue? And then apologize if you need to, but not getting to the point of yelling. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the new things we're doing this year is we're inviting everybody who's actually got an issue that they'd like somebody to talk about to write into me and I will discuss it with my experts. And I think we found exactly the right person. I never realised quite how many injuries George was actually dealing with. And I've got a letter about an injury here. So if you'd like details about how to write into me, go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast. Go right down to the bottom and you'll see a form that allows you to participate in the programme. And this is a guy who's written into me. I never realised how important running and working out was to my sanity until I got injured and had to have my knee pinned. For a while I was in a wheelchair, I'm beginning to be able to put weight on my knee and the physiotherapy is going well. However, I've been told I will probably need a knee replacement sometime in the next 10 years. As you can imagine, I've been down a lot of the time and anxious about what the future might hold. Normally, I've dealt with those feelings by going for a run and burning the bad thoughts out of my head. I can't tell you how well I would sleep after a good workout. These days, I wake up, toss and turn and overthink everything. I'm testy and snappy, like a bear with a sore head. My wife tells me to shape up. She's long since gone past the sympathetic stage. And I get it, but I can't help myself. I've put on all this weight. I feel bad. I look bad. I act badly. I'm stuck. George, I think he's come to the right place, hasn't he? Yes. What would you say to him? So I would say that there's something happens and then he's interpreting what it means. And so when you realize that and all the things that we're talking about in 10 years, but right now, the most important thing is this time. What can you do now? Can you see it as an opportunity for you to grow and evolve? So first thing, he's got to get out of the survival mode, fight, flight, and freeze. Because as I said before, you're either in growth mode or survival mode. You can't be in both on a cellular level. So it's about embracing what's there. It's what I call the four A's. Maybe that's the easiest way to do it. So what are the four A's? The four A's are number one is awareness. And that's Mm -hmm. a certain kind of awareness and ability to embrace what's there, to see what's there, like the mindfulness. Yes, here's a situation. You can't run. You can't work out. And the way you used to deal with your stress is running and working out and doing it physically. Now you got to do a mental workout. You got to adapt, adjust, and figure out a way to manage that stress in a way where you're able to be aware of it 
And then the second stage, first one is awareness. And that is just mirror mind. It's just saying, this is the situation which you brilliantly talked about. Here's where I am. And so, you know, right now you can't work out. You're not able to put weight on your knee and physiology is going well. So you just have to make the right effort. Just do everything you know to do. And then once you do that, then you'll see whether or not it works and whether or not, even though they tell you, you may need a, you see, you probably need a knee replacement sometime in 10 years. That's their opinion. It may not be true. And so you have to just focus on what you can control, focusing on using your same work ethic, running and working out to your recovery, to your PT. And at the same time, keeping your mind positive and focusing on what you can control. Assume the best and forget the rest. And so the first A is the awareness of it. This is where I am. The second A is acceptance. That's the challenge. Because in acceptance <laughs> piece, that's the part where you say, yes, I don't like it. It sucks. But this is what it is. It is what it is. It's like being real. It's like, this is it. It's right here. You got to accept that. And that could be sort of like going through the grieving process. You may have to go through the five stages of denial anger, depression, bargaining, and before you get to acceptance. Now, that could be quicker, just like the other thing. It could be quicker, it could be slow. But to the degree that you embrace that, like I embrace my recovery, uh, uh, yeah, I'm an addict. Once I made that choice and said, yes, I am an addict, and there's a way forward, then you get to the third A, which is action, compassionate action. And the compassionate action is to be gentle with yourself, but at the same time, take responsibility and, and make the right effort and just say, okay, this is the most compassionate thing I can do. I have to stay in a moment. I can't focus on 10 years from now. Right now I'm in a wheelchair. How do I get out so I can start to walk and I can start to do things? Because I felt the same way. I used to run and I had a torn meniscus in my right knee. And so I used to have to slow down to run an eight minute mile because it was painful. Then I couldn't run at all. Then I had to make the transition to walking and, you know, doing, you know, yoga and Tai Chi and other things. But I like being physical. I love running. And so I had to make that adjustment. But the awareness, the acceptance, and then the compassionate action is you make the adjustment. It's an opportunity for you to expand what your capacity is and to see it like me, like, okay, so I couldn't play basketball, and but there was something else for me. I There's a lesson there. What's the lesson? Learn the lesson, and then you keep it moving. But you can still be you can make an amazing partner for your wife and you can be an amazing person in spite of this because you are identified with running. That's not who you were. That's what you did. And so you had self-knowledge and self-invention are lifetime processes. You get to reinvent yourself. You get to reinvent how you're going to manage your stress. That's what it comes down to. And so the so awareness, the acceptance, the compassionate action. And then the fourth thing is the assessment. What worked, what didn't work. And how do you get what didn't work to work? And then the assessment is going to tell you what you need to learn and practice to get the experience. But it's making peace. It's the inside job. It's once again, you understanding, the, like me saying, my identity was playing basketball, but basketball is what I did. It's not who I am. And so we decide who we are. And so that's where you you get access to this power and you choose who you want to be. You get to choose. No one can tell you, but in this adversity, that's when your latent abilities will manifest. So if I didn't go through all the things I had to go through, I wouldn't be who I am. You wouldn't be here talking to me, would you? Yes. And that's the thing. It's like, this is an opportunity. But once again, 
If you're coming from faith, that trust, that glass half full, there's something here for me to get. It's going to be amazing. And I got a masterpiece inside of me that can handle anything. Come on, man. So, in fact, you used to be an athlete. Now you're going to be a mindful athlete. So you're going to be doing your workouts with these four A's, because these four A's are fabulous. Awareness, acceptance, action, and assessment. Yes, and that's the thing. Just think about Michael Phelps. He broke his wrist during his, you know, when he had to get ready for an Olympics. And his coach just had him focus on his legs while his wrist healed. And he ended up winning one of those eight. I think he won eight goals. One of them he won because his kick helped him to win. So this is what we have to understand is be like water. Just whatever comes, you just make it work. And that's an inside job. We have a masterpiece. We can do whatever we decide to do to a certain extent to how how what we can imagine for ourselves and what we're willing to do if we're willing to make the effort. And so being able to run and work out, you already have that discipline. You just got to transfer it to your recovery and your next phase of your life. But you have to ask yourself, okay, now you have an opportunity to do something else, be someone else. Who do you want to be? Or I would say, what do you want to do? And then who do you need to be to do what you want to do? It's really simple. And at the same time, it's not easy. So I'm now going to have to turn the tables on you as a witness to the meaningful life and ask you, what makes your life meaningful, George? What makes my life meaningful? It's interesting you say that because it's helping people. It's sharing my experience, strength, and hope. I have a charter that I developed several years ago. What I want to do is I want people to help people connect to the masterpiece within, to discover the divine spark, to be who all they can be. The values that are at the heart of who I am are love, curiosity, truth, wisdom, insight, integrity, courage, compassion. That for which I could be counted on for is to be loving with a warrior spirit, with a serving and compassionate heart, pursuing excellence and wisdom with grace and ease. So that's the game I'm playing. So what gives me meaning is for me to share my experience, strength, and hope with people with me to help people realize that if I can go from being in a shooting gallery in a crack house to being behind the bench of an NBA championship team, there's nothing I can't do, which means there's nothing you can't do if you put your mind to it. And my job is just to be a witness to having to overcome the adversity to find myself. So I forgot myself to find myself. And how do I forget myself? By serving and seeing how I can help others. So I would say the access to the masterpiece has to do with prayer, meditation, and service. So there's a couple of things that I'm going to still going to ask George, but we've run out of time, so that's going to have to go into our bonus section. So if you want to know how to know yourself and forget yourself, and I'm also going to ask him, what's the most common mistake that all these really successful people make? If you want to know the answer to that and to the three things that George knows deep down to be true, then you're going to have to join us in the bonus section. And if you want to know how to do that, here comes the information. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. 
visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.